0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we examine the future of the palm oil industry in Malaysia. We profile two up-and-coming rappers from the slums of Bangkok. We speak to an artist who was sent to jail in Singapore for his performance art. And we hear from one of our contributors who co-wrote an article on Indonesia's notorious blasphemy law. Malaysia is the world's second largest palm oil producer, with generations of Malaysian farmers relying on palm oil production for their livelihood. But as major economies reposition their reliance on biofuels, Malaysia now has to grapple with environmental considerations alongside economic ones. Tamina Kauzji speaks to palm oil experts about what the future might hold for the industry.
1: Palm oil has been a cornerstone of Malaysia's economy for decades. The country has over 650,000 people, Generations of farming communities, manufacturers, and tradespeople who rely on palm oil exports for their livelihoods. By the end of 2018, Malaysia is predicted to have produced almost 20 million tons of palm oil, a staggering 44% of the global supply, and worth roughly 80 billion ringgit or 19.16 billion USD to the Malaysian economy. But this industry is now entering a period of uncertainty. Palm oil cultivation is an environmental hazard, as it causes greenhouse gas emissions, reduced biodiversity and habitat destruction of endangered wildlife species like the orangutan and tapir. With climate change and environmental practices coming under increased scrutiny, the biofuels market is not the safe bet it once was. In January this year, the European Parliament voted to gradually phase out the use of palm oil in the production of biofuels over a period of years. While the move was widely hailed as a step towards responsible environmental practices, it was also a clear sign that Malaysia may need to start making changes if this becomes a global trend. Emmanuel Bompan, an environmental journalist visiting Kuala Lumpur, says that an overhaul of the industry is almost certainly on the cards
2: first of all you have to respect the rights of the people that are involved or they own the fields where palm oil develops uh, secondly i believe of course it's a pro- very profitable business but we don't uh, if we insist too much on having just one monoculture makes the country at risk because what happens if a plague comes and starts to destroy all the plants all the palms well in a matter of months the economy might be impacted in a major way. So it's always good to diversify the type of culture we have. The third thing to make it sustainable is of course to use everything that comes from the palm oil. So byproducts uh, of every source can now become materials, can become a, a new source of energy, can become many things. So it's always important to see how can we maximize the waste and the byproducts come out of this production.
1: But 2018 also marked a major change in Malaysia's political dynamics with the election of Pakatan Harapan in the May general elections. This has caused an uptick in optimism for the possibility of environmental and political reform in Malaysia.
3: I'm really quite excited with the prospects for palm oil in Malaysia under the new government. On one hand, the is a general sense throughout Malaysia that with this new government, there will, things will be able to improve, and specifically in terms of environmental issues.
1: That's Lim Win, an environmental consultant in Malaysia, whose work focuses on forestry development projects. Lim is also currently a trustee with the Malaysian Palm Oil Certification Council, or the MPOCC. Lim believes the new government could be the key to transforming the sustainability of the palm oil industry. While the measures under the previous government were considered problematic, PH were elected on a more progressive platform. This puts an added onus on the government to fulfill their election promise.
3: The minister who's in charge of plantation industries is uh, uh, YB Theresa Cott, and she has come out and she has reiterated the promise that it was made by Dr. Mahathir in 1992 that 50% of Malaysia will be kept under forest cover.
1: But this won't happen overnight and comes with a number of caveats.
3: The state government has a very, these state governments such as Sabah and Sarawak and also to a certain extent Klantan, they have a far bigger forest area than states such as Langor, Penang, (laughs) Putrajaya, hardly has any forest. And so if we're going to meet this international pledge of 50% overall, we're going to have to find some kind of mechanism so that the poorer states which have more forests are compensated for the fact that they have land that's locked up and can't be developed. And so in order for that to happen, the federal government will have to give some kind of subsidy or financial or uh, economic compensation for these poorer states to make sure that the conservation areas can be kept and the state can still benefit.
1: Malaysia's new government is clearly taking a proactive approach to ensuring sustainability in the palm oil industry. There's also another major market to tap on, even if the Europeans retreat from palm oil. Last year, China imported palm oil worth 9.42 billion ringgit or USD 2.26 billion, from Malaysia compared to the EU's 11 billion ringgit, or 2.64 billion USD. Prime Minister Mahathir's recent visit to China in August is expected to reap higher palm oil exports to the world's second-largest economy, which could help sustain palm oil production in Malaysia.
0: This report was brought to you by Tamina Kaushi in Kuala Lumpur. Last Monday a Thai hip-hop collective released Rap Against Dictatorship, a new song and video critical of the country's military rulers. The artists may be summoned and charged for uploading the video to YouTube if the police find them in violation of Thailand's Computer Crimes Act. But that isn't the only case of Thai artists using rap to push various boundaries. In Bangkok, two young hip-hop MCs from Klong Toei a port community once notorious for drugs and crime, are presenting a new portrait of urban Thai youth. Adam Bemma talks to the two young, up-and-coming hip-hop artists who are hoping to break into the music scene by addressing politics head-on.
4: Nineteen
5: Tiger is a Thai hip-hop artist. His name represents his age of 19 and his half-Thai, half-African-American ancestry. Like golf star Tiger Woods. This
2: song is about news, about the the news that become a social issue. But after time, after the, as time go by, but people forget about the news, like a corruption news, political issue something like
5: that. Nineteen Tigers' new track "News" is about to drop. Filming for the video just wrapped. The song examines the 24 hour news cycle and how important issues like poverty, crime and corruption are quickly forgotten until the next scandal arises. This follows 19 Tiger's first underground anthem, Tai," where he raps about the reality of life in Bangkok's biggest slum. His music producer is DJ Henry. We're talking
4: about the the news. We try to switch Tiger from like a country guy to now to a journalist, the, the content is like, yeah, what is like real is happening in Bangkok.
5: Nineteen Tiger is a former motorcycle taxi driver who dropped out of college to pursue a career in music. He appeared on an episode of Show Me The Money Thailand, a rap-style American Idol television program. But he didn't get beyond a one-minute audition for the hosts. Nineteen Tiger's music is viewed as not mainstream enough for a national television audience. Hey. This hasn't deterred the 19-year-old artist. He sticks to his roots and represents where he comes from, developing his storytelling ability with each new song. 11 Fingers is a 17-year-old Thai hip-hop artist also from the same neighborhood as 19 Tiger. This young MC also gained an online following for his song, Klung Thuy, My City. Both Eleven Fingers and Nineteen Tiger are countering the stereotype of the slum, proving to Thailand that some of its best new music can come from teenagers who shun the industry.
0: I'm my AKA Eleven Finger, okay? I write I hip hop, represent Klung
5: what is it about Klangtai that makes you want to rap about it?
0: Yeah, uh, Klangtai has a story, it's real. Have a big community. And
5: so when did you start listening to hip-hop, and what is it about hip-hop that you love so much?
0: I can listen hip-hop all the time. My family write on hip-hop. My father really loved Titanium. Um, yeah,
5: Titanium is a legendary hip-hop group.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, Titanium?
5: So maybe you can give a little sample of your new song. You can you can freestyle,
0: maybe.
5: James Buchanan is a British sociologist researching Thailand's counterculture.
6: Well, I think for the two boys um, in, in in the rap scene from Klang Thay, um Eleven Fingers and Nineteen Tiger, their experience is first and foremost formulated by uh, coming from this kind of disadvantaged background, which uh, has, has a big social stigma um, amongst Thais. And that kind of sparked some kind of sense of injustice, perhaps, about about the way that Thai society works. If, if Klangdao can become kind of cool, it's, it's what basically, in a nutshell, is what they're doing. They're, they're making it... They're shedding the stigma and making it something to, to be proud of. DJ B is
5: a Thai music producer in Bangkok. He considers all Thai language hip-hop as underground music. This is because radio airplay is impossible for these artists, as most Thais prefer
0: pop music. I saw them on YouTube. I like it though. It's like, it's like, it's like that That's hip-hop, you know, it's like represent where they're from. This is like real, real hip-hop here, in, in, I mean like in Bangkok, you know, it's like rapping about their, their life in the ghetto. Which is, uh, I never, I never seen it before. I think those guys, they want, they want their music keep it underground. That's kind of a new thing in Thailand.
5: James Buchanan believes 19 Tigers' new song should make him a household name in Thailand. That is only if Thais embrace his raw
6: social critique. And it's a great song which looks at uh, the news cycle as it deals with corruption in Thailand and how one um, corruption scandal which Thais are forced to endure so regularly um, is simply replaced by the next one and then replaced by the next one and it's a kind of never-ending cycle that um, makes people forget about the previous things that had happened because they don't have time to process that, or, or, or to ensure that um, justice is done because they're too busy dealing with the next scandal that comes along, and I think that was the idea.
5: DJ Henry is hoping 2019 will be the year of the Tiger. 19 Tigers' anticipated first album will be released next year. Most Thai musical artists shy away from criticizing the state as many things can be misconstrued as les majesty or insulting the monarchy, and land someone a stiff prison sentence. Nineteen Tiger doesn't seem to be cowed. His music video News takes aim at Thai society using political satire. But it may raise the ire of Thailand's military rulers if he ever receives mainstream acceptance or notoriety. We're not insulting
4: anyone, we're just like telling them, like, hey, <laughs> do you guys know what's up? <laughs> yeah, we, we try to make a video that it's actually like, a, like a, a, a
5: comedy.
0: This report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Bangkok. In October 2017, Singaporean artist Silan Pale performed his art piece 32 Years, the Interrogation of a Mirror which reflects on both his own age and the period of time Singaporean activist and parliamentarian Cha Tai Po spent in detention without trial. Carrying a mirror, Silan walked through central Singapore, ending up outside Parliament House. Although alone, he was arrested and later charged with participating in a public procession without a permit. He ended up serving two weeks in prison in lieu of a fine of 2,500 Singapore dollars. A little over a week after his release, Kirsten Han sat down with Ceylan to talk about his work.
7: So thanks Ceylan for doing this interview. Uh, just to start off, could you tell us about how you got the inspiration for your performance art piece?
4: Um, the performance 32 years The Interrogation of Mirror was first conceptualised on my 30th birthday where I was reflecting a lot about my own life and all the experiences that I'd had so far, it struck me that in another two years, I'll be 32 years old, which would be the same amount of time that Dr. Chathaipo had been detained without trial. And that realization, combined with all the, all the thoughts that I already had about my own life, came together and gave me a very strong um, uh, emotion. First I felt agony, and then the agony turned into anger and the anger turned into determination and at the end of this process i decided that in in another in two years uh, i will perform an artwork or produce an artwork i didn't even know it was going to be a performance um, reflecting on all of these emotions and thoughts that i've had Uh,
7: Mm -hmm. and you started it with the mirror in honglin park which is the only place in singapore where you can assemble without a permit and then You actually left the park. So why was that? Why was it important to you to leave the park?
4: Ultimately, three locations were required for the work. And these locations were very significant. Uh, Speaker's Corner and the National Gallery and the Parliament House. And each of these three locations have their own um, inherent and uh, projected meanings, public meanings, but also... Uh, interpretations of these these places everyone has different interpretations of these places and what they mean to them and they were all significant to the artwork so it's 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 more like finishing a course of of uh, a journey
7: and so for that you were charged with uh, i think they called it participating in a public procession without a permit because under Singapore law even one person can be an illegal procession and so what are your thoughts about such a law
4: of course the law is, uh, seems very illogical because uh, how can one person constitute an assembly, or how can one person constitute a procession? Um, in fact, even in the Public Order Act, it specified that a procession is defined as a movement of two or more persons. You see, And then a clause is ad- added much later on saying that a procession can also be one person. It's illogical for anyone, whether it's an whether an artist, a citizen, anyone, uh, can be can be charged under this law as long as what they're doing is, is not agreeable to to the state. In in my case, uh, I didn't know what law they were going to use because ultimately, what in in my, in my view, what had happened was uh, I had planned an artwork, and this artwork requires three locations and I would have to perform it. Otherwise, what else would I do? What is an artist supposed to do if unjust laws, especially, get in the way of the completion of an artwork? You know, Do they censor themselves? Do they destroy the work? Or do they go overseas and complete the work? By which, all of which would mean that the meaning of what they had wanted to express is, is lost.
7: Following the arrest and at the trial, there was this discussion, kind of online and offline, about, oh, was it protests or was it art? And... What, what do you think about this? Is it even meaningful to make this sort of distinction between protest and art?
4: You know, of course, I've been involved in, in direct action and and civil disobedience and, and, and protests that have nothing to do with art before, and that uh, was really me acting as a citizen uh, and also um, allying with activists as well and also advocating for causes myself. Um, but I have had a practice of art and and that's what I started to do, you know. I studied painting and I, I've been an artist longer than, than I've even, even thought about activism or any, any kind of social issues. Um, and and I've kept this up, you know. Every year uh, I would show a series of works, I would have an exhibition um, and, and this time I was really drawing on a lot of these experiences uh, to produce an artwork, so it definitely was only an artwork and and people can read it how they want, you know. Maybe the best answer to this question is when I when I was questioning the police witnesses in the in court, I had asked the officer who arrested me whether he there were three items that were taken from me, a book, a banner and the mirror with drawings on it. And I asked the arresting officer whether he knew what any of these three objects meant. And he said no, he didn't understand. You see, he didn't even know that the performance had anything to do with uh, Dr. Cha Taipo. And he admitted that. And I asked him, so why did you arrest me? He said, well, it seemed like you were inconveniencing the, the Parliament House guards. And that was really was the reason. He, he was there observing the performance. And he didn't, um, you know, uh, this is what I mean. If people want to think about it as a protest, it should have been a lot, a lot clearer, you see. Uh, that's what I told the judge if it was meant to be a protest or a procession, assembly, in that in that context, it would have been made a lot clearer. But even the arresting officers were not clear as to what I was doing and why.
7: And you ended up being convicted and sentenced to a fine, I think, of $2,500. And then you did you choose to then serve jail time instead of pay the fine? Or how did that come about?
4: Yes, I, I chose to serve jail time instead of paying the fine and it was out of principle because to me uh, i feel that i hadn't committed a crime and i wasn't guilty and paying the fine would have just meant that i'm admitting to this supposed crime and had i wanted to pay the fine i could have just paid it when i was arrested a long time ago but i felt it was important to go to court and try to say what i and explain some some matters you know to the court
7: and then Finally, when you were released from prison, then that was when you announced the conclusion of the performance piece. So did you kind of, when you began, have an inkling that this is how the performance would turn out? Or was there a kind of a plan up to a point and then it just develops?
4: Well, uh, the the thing is, you know, I I know um, some people may have may have difficulty understanding different portions of the performance and how they all, and the objects used in it and the actions and how it comes together, I, I can understand i can i can um, understand that they would have that difficulty and and i and at the same time i cannot explain too much because then then the you know if a, if a work really is about is about interpretation and interpretation would require analyzing all different aspects of the work you see it, you cannot just take one part of it and say like oh uh, or you know he was just standing with a mir- uh, he was just standing in, with a mirror in front of Parliament House. That no, that's not what happened. The entire performance had three parts, and and all of them, uh, all of them involve drawing reflections onto the mirror of objects that I saw, of scenes that I saw, and that and and so. Um, but if I if I may explain one one aspect of it, which relates to this, uh, did you plan this? Uh, did, did you plan it this way, or did you think that it was going to end this way? No, a lot of the work is is about probability. Uh, I did not know at which point it would end that day, and how it would end, depending on when the authorities decide that this needs to end. Beyond that, uh, they have a choice of of proceeding with the charges or not. You see, that's that's why the state is a participant in this work, in the creation of this performance and the ending.
7: Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Mm
4: -hmm. Thank you.
0: That was Kirsten Han speaking of Silan Palais in Singapore. In September this year, Stanley Widianto co-wrote the article, How Do You Interview God? with New Narratives Deputy Editor for Bahasa Indonesia, Aisha Lewelin. The article told the story of Meliana, the Chinese-Indonesian mother of four, who was sentenced to one and a half years in prison in North Sumatra in August 2018 for blasphemy. Stanley recounts his experience of writing this story and how Meliana's case impacted him.
8: When I started writing, I felt that my muscle memory was working in overdrive. It was the first blasphemy case I'd ever written about in Indonesia, but I did stories that denote similar cases of conservatism like this one. The LGBT community of Indonesia, for instance, but I remember exactly how I felt when I wrote the bit about the Change.org petition that attracted over 200,000 signatures to ask for Meliana to be released from prison. Or when I almost wrote something like Indonesia's recent descent into conservatism and quickly scrubbed it because these cases had been cropping up for years. I almost felt like I'd written the story before, but with different characters. Like the beat marches on. And so it goes with Meliana, who was tried under Indonesia's contentious, broadly defined blasphemy law. Her perceived crime was that she'd asked for the volume of the speakers of her local mosque to be turned down. While it started out as a neighborly complaint, the issue became distorted on social media and soon people were saying she'd tried to stop the Muslim call to prayer and violated Indonesia's notorious blasphemy law. While I was researching the story, similar examples came to mind. I thought of Ahok, or Basuki Chahayam Purnama, the former Jakarta governor who was accused of misquoting the Quran and sentenced to two years in prison in 2017. Then there's the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Indonesia, whose petition to revoke the blasphemy law fell through this year. It was almost like a song playing on repeat. The tune is the same, and only the name is changed. But there is also something different. I didn't just want the story to be more in-depth than others before it. I also wanted to single something out. The unspoken collateral damage. When I talked to Meliana's lawyer, Sibarani, he told me that one of her children is still traumatized by the sight of crowds. A hoax case wasn't like this. I guess a way to make a case for his imprisonment is something along the lines of, oh, he's a political liability, he pissed a lot of powerful people off throughout his governorship, so I guess there had to be a way to deprive him of that kind of power. This was different. Aisha reported in a piece that Meliana's husband moved away from the residence of Tanjung Balai in North Sumatra to Medan, a city just four hours away. Before that, I talked to a friend of mine who said, maybe there's a story about Meliana that hasn't been written about. And while you're at it, think of her family. I get that the president can't interfere with the legal stuff, sure, but aren't the collaterals in the story his responsibility, too? I thought about those questions a lot before starting on the piece. It had to address all the obvious issues. How to court kowtow to the demands of a mob who may or may not have been politically mobilized. Or how the blasphemy law remains an archaic piece of legislation. I think in our piece there had to be one story at the center of everything amid all the noise. And that story had to be about Meliana and her family. What they've experienced should speak of what will happen if the law continues to rest in the wrong hands. Of course, Jokowi and Prabowo, the two presidential candidates who will run the election in April 2019, won't speak of this law for fear of aggravating their conservative bases. Part of me is hoping for that day to materialize, but there's only so much that they can do as politicians, isn't there? I'm really happy with how the piece came together. I shall talk to the neighbors and found out what happened to Meliana's family. For me, this human side was a crucial part of the story, otherwise it would have been just another chapter of how the blasphemy law eats away at the very notion of religious harmony that Indonesia is really keen to promote. It would have been just one more part of a constant news cycle when it comes to this issue. A thing happens, causes some outrage, then it peters out soon afterwards. But when it does settles, there's just one family whose lives have been changed. Meliana went to jail over some of the most innocuous legal snafu that I have ever seen throughout my years of covering politics. I guess the main takeaway is that there's something Indonesians can learn from her case. It's just unfortunate that there was no way she chose to be this lesson. That was brought to you by
0: Stanley Widianto in Jakarta. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank Tamina Kaushi, Adam Bemma, Silan Pale, Kirsten Hahn, and Stanley Widianto for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just 1 US dollar a week. This is PJ Tam wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.